0: 2013 was the year of the podcast. Is that who said that? I don't know. I am saying it right now. Oh, okay. It was. It's crazy how just the sheer volume of new podcasts there are at all times,
1: and how quickly people on the internet are um, throwing the the trend away. Like I was reading on um, some blog uh, about a week ago. It was like podcasts. Yeah, we know. It sounds so 2005, but s- people are still listening to the exclamation mark as if it's going away. Like, it's only going to get more and more common. It's, it's the natural evolution of uh, talk radio, I think.
0: In general, it, radio as a, as a medium, trying to have a radio station that has good content and that isn't bogged down by terrible ads and by, you know, your corporate masters, it's a hard thing to do nowadays. All radio stations pretty much sound the same. They pretty much have the same quality of content, and any Generic. talk radio, is just, you know, just you know, Dean Blundell recently just got thrown off the air because he's a complete homophobic bigot, and or uh, that he's
1: just, just he's a bad broadcaster and he's yeah. not that creative, and he eventually ended up s- going a bit too far with his dumb like um, bro jokes, yeah. basically. You know, you put your foot in your mouth if you're, if you're kind of grasping at hairs and you can't really think up anything that's original and Yeah, um, you honest. just have to be shocking. You just got to be shocking and tell, yeah. you know, poop jokes <coughs> and gay jokes yeah. and things like that. Yeah, I would say there's there's a couple of things going on. I, I'd say that, um, in general, uh, there's been a real return of the oral culture. And yeah. um In general, like, the ability of people to... Um, just broadcast on the internet, and I don't know. What, what are the other k- things that would make people switch back to telling stories orally instead of reading books? Uh, is it just that it spreads more quickly? Like you can one thing that's always been really powerful about music mm. and musicians as artists is that you can listen to music while you're doing other things. Yeah. So it spreads a little bit more easily.
0: Yeah, the storytelling, uh, when you're listening to someone, it's a, you know, a pretty one-on-one feeling. Moment, and you have to pay a lot of attention. You can't really be multitasking when someone's telling a story, or when you're trying to like read or listen to an audio book or something like that. You can't multitask that well without, uh, you know, re- losing some of the meaning and some of the context.
1: Hmm.
0: <coughs> I think the the internet in general has provided a lot of interesting ways for people to get back to storytelling. Just in general, the the kind of stuff you see on Reddit, where someone will pose. Um, you know, like, nurses, nurses in America, what are your craziest stories? Like, what's the craziest thing you've ever found in someone's ass? Or just, you know, all that kind of, they just pose a question, and then there will just be these massive replies Mm -hmm. of someone who goes through this like, really detailed, awesome, usually really gross, or really funny story. Um, That they might not have ever really had a chance to tell anyone under that, like, under any circumstances, right? Like, it's sort of a weird story about something that you found in someone's ass at work that maybe has not been brought up at dinner or between your friends before. And so the the internet gives like a kind of nice, uh, s- kind of clean place for you.
1: There's never been uh, an outlet for stories like that in the past. Like you think about um, how the Santa culture's comedies. changed, like there used to only be print, right? That was the only way to, to connect people with ideas. In the past, you either wrote a book about a subject, or you put it in a newspaper, and it went through a printing press and got passed around to people. <clears throat> and then there was a television period where um, people were able to broadcast ideas on public spectrums. But it was also in a very conservative era politically, where um, you know Christian forces and and other like conservative forces were trying to keep everything on um, the television stations very uh, traditional and yeah. PC. You know, fun for all ages kind of stuff. And then uh, the Internet comes along, (coughs) and it comes along at a time when there was huge corporate consolidation that were making the traditional TV stations and the traditional radio stations completely banal. Like, I don't know if you remember, um, about eight years ago, there was hysteria going on um, about, uh, cl- uh, what is it? Clear Channel buying up all of the radio stations. Yeah. They bought up m- the majority of the radio stations in North America, and um, there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of anti corporate protesters that thought that that was like one step closer to 1984, and yeah. you know the corporation is going to own the airwaves. What will we do when the corporation owns the airways? Yeah. And instead, what happened is these huge companies spent. Millions of dollars to buy up those stations Mm -hmm. shortly before they became completely irrelevant. Yeah, by the internet
0: Yeah, exactly and now and now podcasting and internet radio stations and streaming and pirating and everything has made the idea of radio as a a Format to get your music or to get your news or to get your talk your chat democratized yeah now everybody
1: can have a radio station
0: absolutely yeah and for free and do it practically for free put whatever content they want, and...
1: And suddenly the story about the nurse finding uh, strange objects in people's butts has a channel because it's not a mainstream thing. You're not going to hear it on public airways or on public TV, but you can hear it on the Internet. There's there's plenty of places to If you to seek
0: them. it out, that's the thing. The Internet pretty much has uh, everything that you want, all the kinds of stories, any kind of weird porn that you might want. Any kind of music that you might want.
1: And I think that that's it's scary. W- that should be really inspiring to artists. If you if you know a lot of artists and people who do creative things, um, you might be you might be um, if you're if you're going into art and you want to do creative things in order to um, show off or to, to get attention for yourself, the internet can be uh, a dissuasive force because it just feels like nowadays everybody is creating stuff, but I would counter that point by saying um, exactly what uh, you just mentioned: that if you have, if you are honest, you have a unique story that's different, and you have something to contribute to the the global conversation that's kind of going on right. online. And if you are honest and uh, you show your colors and you put something that's that's really true to you, that's original content, and you'll eventually find. Um, there'll be, even if it's, like, just two or three people you connect with, you might end up being the voice that resonates with that person. And, you know, that's uh, that's an important thing. Like, you, you think back to all of the crazy shit that we've listened to over the years, like, stuff that you found really moving. Right. And you think about um, people just like you put it together. And you think about, like, the, the fears and, the, and everything that they had to overcome in order to, publish something at a high level and send it out into the world right. and how you should be like grateful, right? Like I, I totally understand um, fan mania sometimes, like when right. you think of all of the great art that you've liked. I mentioned uh, the person that made that stuff had just found it too hard or they got too scared to share or right. they got too... Um, Sidetracked by their lives, or you know, whatever the excuse. Imagine all of that cool stuff that you liked over the years had never been put out, and how s- much sadder the world would be yeah. if people didn't take a stand and do stuff. Well, I think so a, it was an interesting
0: point, too, um, about the sheer amount of content on the internet and how that can be a, a bit of a deterrent for someone else creating. Because um, you see, so much I mean, we're making this podcast right now in a, a time when there are. Uh, countless podcasts there's all these podcasts popping up all the time and you might think that you're just like a speck in the pond but the internet didn't just um, allow content creators to be more prolific and, and to put content out easier it also brought all of the, the viewers from all the other forms of media like from television and radio and print into one singular format like they're all getting it from their computer now and so the viewership has expanded to meet the demand of, like, all the content that's coming out. I mean, like...
1: Mm. That's interesting. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's kind of reverse.
0: Yeah, it's... You can't be afraid of how much content there really is out there. Because for all the people who are making content, there are plenty more who aren't. Who are just there to consume it. Who are on the other ends of that computer just, like, waiting I mean to what consume it, What it comes down they to they is like.
1: um, there's... Uh in, in Seth Godin's book, um, I think it's Lynchpin, he talks about um, true fans, and the the main goal of an artist in the, the modern age is just find a thousand people. You just need a thousand true fans, people who really care about what you're doing um, and are willing to give you a little bit of money, even if it's about $100 a year, just $100 a year from... 1000 people globally there's six billion people so your odds of finding that thousand are pretty high yeah um, if you're doing honest stuff that people can um, relate to Um, yeah but you think about you think about all the mania that that um, people um, there's an envy of people who have been able to do viral videos Um, everyone who's contributing to YouTube um, feels disappointed If they don't get a viral success, you know, they compare themselves to Psy and to that stupid Fox, what the Fox say video. Oh,
0: yeah, don't remind me. And
1: uh, to me, like, I think what is being completely missed in that conversation when you're just p- counting numbers and counting eyeballs yeah. is A, the majority of the people that play a video only watch it for 15 seconds and they go like, that was stupid and they turn it off. Yep. Right? And B, that you only need, like I say, that magic number of a thousand true fans in order to make a middle class living. Yeah, that's true. And so, and also, like, when you think about um, all the people watching 15 seconds of Psy and then turning the video off, think about, like, how different that experience is compared to a true fan that, like, seeks out every single Werner Herzog interview yeah. or every single version of, like, Nine Inch Nails live. Has like seen
0: that video of Herzog drinking f- out of the shoe over and, <laughs> over, and <laughs> over and over and over. And you say, like,
1: <coughs> that is a completely different attitude than the person who's skipping over the side video. Right. Even though they both only counted for one view, the level of engagement of somebody who really cares yeah. is so much more valuable than just the average person that sees your thing. We're still thinking of the ar- advertising paradigm where you know you put a a commercial on in the fucking Super Bowl and you get 20 million views and then hopefully some of those people will buy your detergent it's not like that anymore with the internet you gotta really put out honest heartfelt expression and hope to find the other people that feel the same way about something and then start to coalesce into tribes that like support one another that's the new game that's going on yeah (coughs) dead air space Every time there's dead air we'll just hit the hit the uh the black street dead air dead air dead air dead air Oh um. Oh Was that right? <laughs> oh <shit. Great. laughs> yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I feel that. We'll just cut this part. Yeah. We don't cut anything out. This is just shipping uh, tabs and all. Really? <laughs> 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 you can't, uh, you can't do that. I'll just professional. You
0: do. Yeah. You can't put the guff in. <laughs> just cut it
1: all, all together <laughs> into like segments. The and put little bell noises every time there's a cut. Oh.
0: People just like it when it's, it's all dead air behind it anyways, right? So you never even know. Hmm. It's like, so, so long as you don't have Black Street playing in the background.
1: Yeah, you hey. can make the edits a little bit cleaner. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can just like cut to the next thing. You really need like some sort of remote device so that you can just hit the Black Street whenever... You know, or just keep your finger on the space bar all the time, and then yeah. whenever there's a uh, pause, you just... <laughs> boom! Cue <laughs> uh-huh. <Keep> it up. <laughs> <laughs> uh. <laughs> just dated enough that when they're played in the context of a couple of stoners doing a podcast in a bedroom, Yeah. you don't... It's just that right, right level of ambiguous. Like whether it's a good groove or they think it's ironic. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: think, that for the record, i really like this song. Yeah, me too. It's, <laughs> one, of, it's one of my genuine favorite
1: songs. Mostly because of all the cameos,
0: Dr. Dre all over that shit.
1: Yeah, I love it when there's a when there's a super group coming together for the shining moment, the <laughs> traveling lil' berries.
0: I really like the uh, this era, in. In boy bands, because like Blackstreet, in in a, a kind of weird way, they're like a a boy band, in a sort of weird way.
1: Yeah, and <laughs> I, wha- okay. What year was this? This was probably ninety eight or something. Ah, uh, fuck, probably yeah,
0: something. Maybe along.
1: earlier than that. Yeah, um, but you see, you know,
0: they're like they're matching outfits. Like boys to men were doing that a yeah, lot in the nineties. Yeah. Like
1: well, I mean, uh, th- what's funny is Jessica d- was at Oisey and a kid wanted to write a speech on boy bands and she was in charge of kind of just guiding them through. And she would give me a report each day of, of things that the kids said that she disagreed with and things she corrected. Right. And so this little kid who's probably 10 years old wanted to do a speech on boy bands and she's like, Oh, that's cute. And the person starts their history of boy bands and they're like, the first boy band was the Beatles and blah, 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 and she goes beat by beat how the Beatles became the most famous man in the world and the most influential artists of their time, and how, um, you know, Justin Timberlake has gone on from boy bands. Like, kind of glamorizing the boy band, and, like, as far as Jessica was concerned, like, all she... Her side of it is just like, oh, those bands are manufactured and the songs are written by committees, yeah. and it's banal anyway, and it's only for little kids. So she had like a very negative opinion of boy bands, yeah. and she told that to the little kid, right? And then she came home, she's like, I can't believe she that the kid thought that the Beatles were a boy band, and she's going on about that. And I'm like. Jessica, they were a boy band. Yeah, they just they really happened are. to be amazing, and they transcended it. But originally, they were marketed in like the little suits and stuff. And yeah. They were, before it's they uh, went to India and went crazy, they were just a boy band. Well, even before that, like they were very, very talented. Yeah. It just it just so happened that a producer had plucked them out of obscurity and packaged them and put them on television shows with the intent of them being a famous boy band. Right. But they happened to be a bunch of like kids from Liverpool that had been playing in strip clubs for the last um you know 18 months straight yeah. and had gotten their chops like really really well yeah um, put together but yeah that's that's a funny thing like um i was um i was reading an article about um th- how when the music industry broke like when it started to collapse right <coughs> and it was describing um the late 90s there was a consensus among the major labels that they had cracked the business code for recording.
0: Um. Oh, yeah, that's clear. I mean, They had
1: the system down. They had um, large labels through subsidiaries and things owned all of the record stores. Right. And they owned a great deal of uh, radio stations and television stations. And so between um, radio, television the record stores, they could have their own record stores purchasing albums on the first day yeah. of release, which would then boost the sales of the record even though they were buying their own their albums. Own things, yeah. And then based on those numbers, they could put together a countdown show on the television outlet that would say, <laughs> number one album this week. Yeah. You know, <laughs> ten thousand copies sold. Black street or whatever it was. Yeah, yeah. And Going even further down the chain, they also uh, invented the, v- the 90s version of boy bands where they had active casting calls oh to yeah. find, like, the cute, the cute guy, guy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The, br- the brainy guy. The, the nerd. The sporty one, the sporty one, the jerk. <laughs> and they put them. They find like the, They have to have like one soloist, so that's like the Timberlake kind of guy who can, who's got really who good. Actually, can, and sing. Really can sing on the parts where they need it. Yeah. And um, they put the the group together, and they pretend that they've been. They write a backstory about how they've been friends since they were children. Yeah. And uh, they're coming together for you know the one shining moment to see their dreams and and be recording stars. And then they get a committee to write the album, which is usually consists of three decent singles and a whole bunch of filler. Yeah, yeah. And then they put that through the chain. So they've got record label execs putting the bands together, submitting them to the stores that they own, selling their own record to themselves, then going on television, promoting that the record is number one, and then, in the hopes, the hope is at the end of the food chain, you'll have convinced all these teenagers into thinking that that is the actual best record around, and yeah. then go and pay your money to f- to follow the trend and be part of the crowd, the in crowd. Yeah, and
0: it, I mean it works. It, it did, did work. It it, it this did isn't a fantasy. This is, this like it, is di- it also continues to work. I think for some of them, anyway. not for all. Like they're still trying to do it. <laughs> yeah, and you can see how uh, YouTube recently had to turn back a bunch of their hits because they discovered that different record labels had been they were trying to do the same thing yeah, that they did in, exactly in, thing. in the record stores they were, they were
1: trying to uh, run c- uh, they had robots going on the 300 internet 300
0: million views and, and, and the video posted like again. a week ago and it's like yeah how many m- hundreds of millions of views were like generated by you yeah exactly you know
1: and the, uh, that, that stupid sheep behavior where um It used to be in a a period of limited channels when everybody was watching the same content. Yeah. It was really important to be... If you wanted to feel like you were in the in crowd, you had to be watching the number one show on television. And that starts to break down on the internet, right? Like, they think that if there's 100 million views on a video, then that'll sell concert tickets, and I don't think it works that way anymore.
0: No. Especially since the the kind of... uh, the way content is geared on YouTube there's usually not a very obvious connection f- from like a video to uh... to really being a fan of that band like even, even a song that you just like see like like a really kinda cool video that someone's made or a weird uh... video it's just gone viral and you see that and you listen to the song um... ninety-nine times out of a hundred I'm like, oh, this video is really cool, and I'll probably talk about the video, but that's the last I'll ever really think about that band. They say it takes
1: three impressions. Like you, Maybe you see that video, and it the video makes you patient enough to listen to the song all the way through, and then that's one. And then you hear that song again in a car commercial or something. Yeah. That's two. And then you hear a second single by the band where it, you you can hear that there's a similar enough um musical style that you recognize oh that must be the same band that made that catchy song that everybody was listening to yeah and then that's the third one and then you think of them as a real band and then that might be enough to download the record and then it goes from there yeah but you need that that three impressions thing before it'll stick
0: (coughs) yeah the internet's made that a lot easier because things get shoved in your face a lot and people just repost the same content Oh, and you can also get
1: your your three impressions at hyperspeed, right? Like you just Google and you go like, oh, shit, it's everywhere. I didn't know that stupid thing was famous. Yeah. (laughs) Not that it's always stupid. Sometimes it's really good, but... Occasionally. Every every so often you run into something that you had no idea had blown up as big as it can, as it has.
0: Oh, I mean, for the longest time when Psy was nearing his whatever billion hits or whatever i'd heard about the song but i had willingly just ignored it just said "Nah, i'm not going to be a part of this because it sounds just ridiculous it just sounds like one of those internet marketing things that's clearly been set up and is like probably really not generating this number of views and then when i saw it and i like i saw the number of views it actually had and like i saw the sheer volume of videos of just like people imitating psy and like reactions to the video and stuff like that i was like
1: Wow, people went nuts. People went really,
0: really crazy for this. And you know what's funny is, I thought that it was
1: a total, kind of Weird owl type of thing where people yeah. were listening to it because it was silly and then had a funny dance. But I heard his follow-up single. It was the exact same. It was pretty much the same song. Just but I heard his follow-up single in context. Job. I was at I was at like a digi bar, the one beside Victor Victory Cafe. Oh, Have you been in that yeah, place? Yeah, yeah. I it has like a small kind of dance party room where random people it's small enough to be a private room but it's open to the public so there's mm. a whole bunch of different people in there that don't know one another and they were projecting like old black and white movies on the the back wall and they had an open mm. dj booth so you could just walk up to the ipod and flick through the songs and play whatever you want right and somebody played the follow-up single to that that sigh right and i was like this ain't bad i'm pretty fucked up right now i'm pretty drunk or whatever and the and it was made entertaining by the fact that it was like really cute girls that were dancing to it. But I was like, this is, uh, this is it? I don't think this song is ironic. I think that people actually like this song because it's, uh, well, it's super, uh,
0: it's telling about how EDM is growing in strength again. I've been more and more, especially last year, like 2013, uh, most, if not all, of like the top 40 stuff all year anytime that i was around a radio like i was in a car or i was at work and like i couldn't avoid listening to some shitty radio station uh it didn't seem like there was much super popular rap or hip-hop going on it was just all edm Mm -hmm. and it all sounded the same and it was just like you know breathy girls singing the hook and like some weird drop on it that everyone starts pumping their fist and it's they all, every song sounded pretty much the same, but I- in in that, though, not that they're bad, like the s- songs sound the same, but they were, f- for what they are for, for dancing and just going crazy and getting
1: mm. drunk, that
0: they completely serve their purpose. Like, they've got that down to a science, like writing a song that just makes people dance around and, like, lose their inhibitions too. they've got...
1: I want to. I want. I want. Y- I, I kind of want you to follow that up by giving me the most stereotypical example of that. C- can you call that up on YouTube? Well, like what? I don't know. The one of the songs that you're describing from from last year. Oh. With okay. the party hook and the <laughs> <laughs> the drop and the fist pumping and stuff. You mean this one? Yeah, I want to hear what that's all about. Um <laughs> That's amazing. No, there's a uh, that brings me back to my childhood.
0: One, uh, one song that kind of comes to mind is this this song. Uh, I ended up looking it up because i heard it a few times. I was just like, "What the fuck is that?" Um, it's a artist called Zed. The song's called Clarity. Clarity, Clarity. by Zed. Um, I'll just play a snippet of And this, this is on the radio? This is this is a big song. This, this is, is like a, a big song. Like a radio. big summer Alright. song, I guess. Oh, look at that YouTube advertising story. I don't
1: know anything about anything. You don't got Bucker Plus on?
0: Nah, fuck it.
1: Oh, it's it's so
0: great. I just let the ads piss me off. That there was, was
1: Tr- chant kind of thing, yeah, uh, and army, it's army, th- army singing. Yeah, just
0: breathy girl singing, like lots of high notes. What was and that you know, uh, like
1: Bastille like song? Kind of had a similar vibe. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah.
0: And I mean, like that d- that Daft Bronk album came out this year, and I feel like they w- they wouldn't have taken a taken a chance on putting that much work into an album unless they thought that EDM was something that actually had money in it again. Because right. I feel
1: like Daft Punk, they didn't want to have nobody listen to it. Yeah, I feel,
0: I feel like they disappeared kind of because they lost faith in the strength of electronic music compared to all the other top stuff. Because they just became like a bit irrelevant compared to what else was really popular.
1: The two Daft Punk robots are like EDM is leaving. We must <laughs> we must retire.
0: But yeah, and then they saw the resurgence where just you know people really wanted to just forget the. F- Forget rap and forget the complexity of music. Just play a fucking beat that I can move around to.
1: Make the ladies drip.
0: And they put that song out—the Get Lucky song—which was the massive like summer song. Like I couldn't go anywhere without hearing that song. uh,
1: the thing that that was surprised me about that song is, if you didn't know it was Daft Punk, would you go? (laughs) Oh, this is probably the new Daft Punk. Like there was nothing characteristic about that. There's
0: one part in the song where like the vocal order comes in, and it's that classic, like, Daft Punk vocorder Yeah, uh, I want sound. the robot
1: voice all the way through. Yeah,
0: and, but no, it was seriously, it just sounded like, uh, you know, just a popular dance song. And very been- retro. Yeah, it had like a discoy beat sort of going on too. It was more or less a disco song. It feels just like disco is coming back in a way that's uh, it's super subtle and no one's ever gonna call it disco ever
1: again. Disco is always on the verge of coming it's back. So <laughs> There's always on <laughs> one big song a year that has that disco kind of disco stuff. vibe. Arcade Fire has a bit of disco on that Reflector I album. I really too. don't like that. No. no, you didn't like it. Nah. You're in the minority. I'm glad to be there. Have <laughs> I rock. But
0: I mean in general, in, in general I was never a huge fan of those guys
1: to begin with. They don't have glockenspiel anymore. anymore. That's a that's a
0: plus They listen style. to you. You,
1: you, you made a, a bold, you were very vocal about wanting no glockenspiel and, and it, it just left arcade. It got far.
0: to a point in the, in the mid-2000s in Ontario music where every show had at least one band with a girl playing glockenspiel in it. And in- including a band that I was playing in at the time. Like, well, I mean, little. We should totally list you as a
1: Glockenspiel player on the the website. <laughs> on, web on the website. On the website. Later on, <laughs> on the website, you'll be pretty black Glockenspiel.
0: Glockenspiel champion. <laughs> no, I I think I think they're a, they're a cheap add-on, and they're just really indicative of the sound of the mid 2000s. All these bands just wanted to have like.
1: Yeah, and a lot of bands that were listening to Bruce Springsteen and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, yeah. they wanted that kind of. They heard the intro to Thorndorf Run. Thorndorf run, run, yeah, right, yeah. run has Glockenspiel. Yeah, Thorndorf
0: Run has at the beginning, and they're like, yeah, yeah that it, it, it works.
1: It kind of. It's, it's a way of making um, rock music a little bit more. fancy? <laughs> <laughs> you know? So you can adding a, a <laughs> tinge of class without having. Like the rocker's dream.
0: You don't actually have to know. This it, is bedtime music! <laughs> this is Benton music. Hit the guitars. Let the guitars play. <laughs> 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 the uh, the only thing I would say for any band that has a Glockenspiel is, upsize it. Learn how to play the xylophone. Just take it all the way, rather than playing like a kind of. Is mini that all guitarist. it is? It's just a,
1: a mini xylophone. Yeah, uh, c- more or less. Oh, why do they call it Glockenspiel instead of? Mini I think Zylophone. I
0: think Glockenspiel is the. It's if I'm not mistaken, it's the brand.
1: It's the German for mini xylophone. <laughs> It must be my and spear. And where are your papers? Where are your papers? And your <laughs> <clock> and
0: spear. <laughs> um, yeah, no, just uh, like I mean, xylophone's awesome. Full-size xylophone and someone who can rip on it sounds great. Fucking a lot of the double hammers. Yeah, a lot of zappa music. That I wouldn't like otherwise. I like only because it has an amazing xylophone player. Mm. Just going on it. And, and Steve Reich,
1: too, has, oh yeah. has some good xylophone in his songs. Yeah.
0: I saw, I, I can't re- I never remember her name. I'll, I'll maybe I'll look her up. But I went to the Toronto Symphony Orchestra uh, probably about f- six years ago. Did you right?
1: fall in love with a xylophone player?
0: No, 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 no. I saw, uh, it, it was a really, uh, we went to one of the, the rehearsal shows or whatever at the TSO. And one of the performers was this deaf percussionist. she was uh, a uh she wasn't born deaf she h- at one point could hear um but she was just this insanely amazing percussionist and did this huge set where she played like three different styles of percussion. she did like a wood and like a tonal and a steel um but she did a huge part where she played xylophone and it was Unbelievable. <laughs> accentuated by the fact that she couldn't hear a fucking note she was playing. She couldn't hear anything. And one of her tricks was she played with, uh, with no shoes on. Mm, she, she could feel the vibrations. Vibrations, that's yeah. That's common. But that's still also, like, vibrations is one thing for, like, atonal percussion. If you're just playing drums and you remember how, like, drum beats go, then, yeah, that's, like, no problem. But she was playing a f- xylophone. Mm. She was playing notes. Yeah. And
1: she must have had really sensitive feet.
0: Sensitive feet or just like a, I mean, maybe at that point, once you, you're that good an instrument and you go deaf, you mm. lose your hearing. Maybe you just hear it in your head. Maybe like once you know a C is a C on the piano or like uh, this is this on the xylophone and you lose your hearing, you can still confidently hit all of those things
1: and write. You get them, it in your muscle memory. Yeah, in it's those.
0: in your muscle memory and maybe in your mind. Maybe like you're still able to like manifest what a C is. Without being able to actually hear it,
1: I think that that's probably what's going on. I think what also might be going on is your brain is a, a really funny thing when it loses connection to one of its inputs, like whether it's your sight or your hearing or your voice. <coughs> um, it kind of it seems to rewire itself. You know, like how someone will have a, a stroke in one part of their brain, and then after a lot of coaching and hard work, they end up relearning. The ability to speak but it's using a different part of the brain than the one that was damaged. Yeah, I think that there might be some trippy shit going on with um, People who lose their hearing like the brain is searching for um, a new Stimuli to 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 fill that connection or to like interpret that data. Yeah um, And so I wouldn't be surprised if the the sensation of touch in the hands and the feet became more sophisticated to the point where you almost could hear with the vibrations that are coming in through your feet. And what I mean by that is um, there was a really interesting YouTube clip with um, Richard Dawkins. He's the atheist guy, right? Yep. Dr. Richard Dawkins. And um, I love it when these people like Dawkins get asked questions about scientific stuff. Because so often, like, Dawkins is just interviewed over atheism stuff because he's kind of a an activist in that regard he's
0: become a bit of a pop culture but he's
1: he knows his he's really famous in the first place because of his deep knowledge of genetics yeah and um, he had been asked um, a really basic question about um, about senses and like how I think it was it was kind of a stoner question about being in the machine or something and um, (laughs) okay he so he was asked a, a question about senses and uh, somehow he was able to get on the topic of bats and echolocation. And he had like a really interesting take on it that um, I had never considered. Um, I don't know if you should just call it up on YouTube so that he can, you can hear it direct from him. But basically to paraphrase, the idea is that um, bats see by echolocation, but we shouldn't imagine that as us being in a black a black room, a darkened room, and us trying to figure out our way around the room by the bumps and the noises that we're hearing. Yeah. He was saying he was theorizing that um, what it might actually be like for a bat is that their echolocation is so sophisticated that the brain is actually interpreting those sound waves and turning it into visual data. I
0: love the Daredevil movie. Yeah, I the Daredevil movie. Right. Yeah. Ben Affleck's echolocation. Mm-hmm. Allows him to just see. He is a not blind person at that. Point.
1: But that's what Dawkins is 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 um, suggesting. And I thought that it was it was a really interesting um, take on it because he goes as far as saying that, um, like even the the visual um, the visuals that we see, that's not a direct relationship between your eye and your brain. Right? Like the eye is converting those photons into information and the brain is interpreting it and turning it into a, a picture right that's actually not accurate there's all sorts of parts of the light spectrum that we can't pick up there's yeah, yeah. um you know just uh, the concept of our reality yeah. that we have solid objects in front of us that we can't pass through all of that kind of stuff is is semi-imaginary because the world's kind of made out of energy and most of the matter that we see is neg- is empty space all of those kind of trippy things right yeah and so what he's saying is that no the echolocation data might be interpreted in the exact same way that we take photons from the s- the sky and turn mm-hmm. that into an image the right. the audio data might really be like seeing and maybe
0: even better or in a like a different way than we're seeing like the mm-hmm. bat obviously obviously is able to navigate with navigate and to eat tiny almost like molecule sized bugs where they're flying around in the dark and they're picking out these tiny little bugs out of the air mm. clearly there's something going on there where they have a uh, they're pretty in tune with their environment
1: yeah that's cool
0: uh speaking of sound we were talking earlier about uh about haunting sounds
1: yeah i wanted i wanted to to touch on um I was, I was reading, uh, I think it was around Halloween. I was reading about, uh, ghost stories and stuff. And it reminded me of this article that I had seen, um, a couple of years ago, trying to explain why, um, certain buildings are thought of as having bad energy or hauntings. And, um, it led me to, um, this, uh, I think it was a cracked, cracked.com article about infrasound. And, um, it's it's kind of a trippy thing like basically the idea is that um back in the 50s there was uh, a scientist and he found that if he as a practical joke you could knock two pieces of um metal together and they would vibrate at a certain frequency that the conscience the conscious uh, mind of a human can't pick them up like they're too low the vibration is too low but the subconscious can pick it up so he could induce, like, queasiness and stuff in his lab colleagues by going up and, like, hitting the two pieces of metal together and bringing it close to his lab partner's head. Yeah. But, like, they would get headaches or they would feel odd or... It's Queasy, um yeah. the, one, uh, the one lab aide actually started bleeding from the ears is what the article said, anyway. Weird, yeah. Um, so, yeah, like, these low vibrations are called infrasound, And they induce uh, feelings of dread, feelings of nauseousness in human beings. And it's an evolutionary thing because infrasound is generated by earthquakes, hurricanes, volcanoes, tidal waves, volcanoes, volcanoes, um, and large jungle cats. So the idea is that at one point our species was kind of living on the savanna and getting jacked by uh, giant saber-toothed tigers and things like that. And so we have developed an inner uh, dread of those low, low vibrations, um, which makes sense. Yeah. And I mean
0: that—that that would explain why um, animals all instinctively flee when there's a tsunami coming or when a, a volcano is about to erupt. They're it extra
1: in tune with that. Yeah, they—that
0: c- sound triggers something, and they get the fuck out of there as pretty much as quickly as they can. Mm-hmm. It's strange how how sound and just like the design of sound can be. Uh, Can just affect someone so deeply, really just chill someone or to make them feel queasy, and not just like those kind of like infrasounds that you're talking about, but just, just well designed creepiness. I don't know. The the other day, um, it was just a kind of weird thing that happened to me. I was home alone, (laughs) pretty late, and I was trying to make a phone call. And every time I tried to make a call, my cell phone, like before it would even ring, it just connected to this very strange static and just, like, garbled talking. Oh, so I creepy. Could t- I could tell that it was voices, but it was just so staticky and, like, broken up that it was just, like, with this insane static going on Weird. The you don't
1: hear that very often. That used to be a really common aspect of cell phones is that you'd have calls cutting in and...
0: Yeah, and you'd be able to hear... And, like, even old wireless phones. I remember, mm. like, when I had a wireless phone back in uh, my mom's apartment building. Every once in a while, you'd pick up the phone to go make a call and you could hear someone else's phone call in the just staticky and like kind of blasting over static but you could just hear someone else's call but yeah it just it was strange my phone kept doing it it did it about four times in a row I kept trying to make it out but it really got to me for a second uh when I first heard it just this weird garbled talking and just the static and the quality of the sound everything about it Even though I'm like a fully rational person who really doesn't, I'm like a non-believer in like ghosts and like that kind of weird spectral energy and all that shit. I got like a weird nervous feeling Mm. for about a minute after that first call when I heard that weird sound. Just like that, there's just something about you can manipulate a sound, especially low quality recordings. There's something about old school Mm. recordings that really can just like chill people.
1: Yeah, and I don't know if that if there's a cultural um reason why uh lo-fi audio has that kind of mysterious quality to it. Do you think we just associate it with a piece of audio that was found, you know, a piece of reel-to-reel tape that was found in an attic or something. We associate the degrading quality of it with with, with spookiness or do you think um just something like the in the audio. The
0: antiquity maybe is where the fear is. Live just something so old and like of mysterious origin. Mm. Um, but I mean, yeah, like uh, one of the things I am really into are uh, number stations, which are just odd spy broadcasting stations that are still still broadcasting to this day all around the world. They're shortwave, and wait, uh, they're still going. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There's all sorts of them that if
1: you have shortwave equipment, you can. So uh, what's the background you know, behind it? What is what is shortwave? What is shortwave? Or yeah, is it like ham radio or something?
0: Yeah, basically it's just like it's just a di- it's a certain kind of broadcasting. Um, it's it's useful for its extreme distances. Like on clear nights, you can. Uh, is it like
1: CBs and in trucker, uh, long haul trucker, cabs that kind of thing?
0: Yeah, and uh, they have, y- you know, on a really clear night you could pick up stuff from you know halfway around the world um with shortwave hmm. um and yeah there are all these these stations set up that are kind of World War 2 era in origin um that just broadcast number codes so they'll just the the person on the other end will have to have the decoder for that day and different sequences of numbers will just mean different you know orders or different words or whatever it just be m- coded messages so you're saying
1: that the spies are sending it back and forth well
0: it, yeah they were then ri- I mean, it's still a fairly effective way of getting a message to someone who can't, uh, like, it gets rid of the danger of a two-way uh, mm. call for a spy. Like, two-way radio is how spies always get caught, whereas this is just something that's being broadcast. Everyone can hear it, but only the person who has the cipher, the t- the cipher for the that decode. day can possibly decode what the message means. So it's how still do they get the ciphers to one another? I mean, you, probal- the you the probably is. leave with it. Right? They probably, like, make a cipher for... Oh, they have,
1: like, a Bible that says cipher for January 25th, cipher for January 26th.
0: Yeah, yeah. Just ha- it, it probably it could even just be as simple as, like, each day a different number equates to a different letter. And every single day that changes. Like, the number that equates to a different letter changes on every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're still operating all over the world. Um, and there's this amazing collection of recordings of them called the Conet Project... Uh, and there's just something about the quality of the audio that it's like, you know, it b- it's kind of creepy that they're spy stations to begin with. That's a sort of interesting notion of these, like, sort of uh, clandestine transmissions that are being broadcast all over the world. And, like, you know, what what's going on at the other end of that transmission? Yeah. That's one thing. But the actual quality of the sound, because shortwave doesn't have a really good staying quality, like, the m- farther you are away, the more blustery it is. And they go, like, because all the countries know that they run number stations, they go as far as jamming each other's stations with bubble jammers. So on the CD, there's all sorts of uh, really crazy tracks where there's a transmission happening, and then you'll just hear, like, this crazy (laughs) like bubbling sound coming in. And that's another spy station basically just trying to intercept and block out their transmission to stop it.
1: Fuck, that's crazy. It's interesting uh, that the cold war has such a funny dynamic with people having battles over something as abstract as radio signals and i thought yeah. that it's also made doubly absurd when um you know post edward snowden post nsa leaks when you when they finally pulled the curtain away from what all these top secret secrets were and it was like hillary clinton doesn't like chavez you know, yeah. they don't want to sit together at the United Nations. It's like so and so thinks so and so is a bitch. It's all just like high school politics. It's basically what they've been keeping top top secret. Well,
0: I mean I could see why they would do that because politics is all a game of like, you know, being popular.
1: Resource poker.
0: Yeah. <coughs> Anyways, here here's a recording of one of the one of the number stations. <laughs> switch frequencies too, right? Like, every once in a while they just throw the frequency around. Um, here's, no- here's, another e- here's an example of they're jamming one another. Um. <coughs> From Iran or Iraq. And, uh, yeah, they're still just having this crazy spy game played out with these clandestine radio stations a lot of them have, uh, the, the extra creepiness is that they have, uh, kind of call signs where at the top of the hour or right before they're about to begin, uh, a transmission, they'll play, like, a little theme or, uh, you know, like the Lincolnshire Poacher, or like... <laughs> To be used for the British Secret Intelligence Service. Ah, cool. So it's just
1: some some working class lady reading off the numbers. She doesn't know what they mean. Probably not. Yeah, that's right. Three, one, seven,
0: five. Here here are numbers
1: for today. Three, nine, seven, one, five. What do you think it is
0: about that kind of low quality and the static? And what is it about that sound? That just, for almost everybody, just sort of has, like, a cross the board, like, inherent creepiness in it.
1: And how disappointing is it going to be when we get s- satellite transmissions from actual alien higher intelligences that can beam up signals in perfect HD quality, and it has no mystery at all. They could just go straight to your TV, <laughs> live in color. Hello. Uh, hello. Welcome.
0: <laughs> you are being dominated. You
1: wow. are advanced enough. You have discovered internet, and now we can talk to you. We are going to take all of the resources from your planet and murder you all. The The discovery of
0: internet is probably like, not li- obviously n- not in the way we have it, but for any advanced culture, that would be a big landmark when you finally come up with that system that just like a- all the other different kinds of information and communication all blend into one really beautiful, well-oiled machine. Because y- TV... As a as a kind of one way device, just like things being beamed at you, just a stream of bullshit consciousness being like thrown at you all the time, it's like people only put up with it because there was nothing better. There was no way for them to like talk back to their TV. Right.
1: And I, I like to look at it from um, the point of view, the lens of of history. Like you think about how democratized everything's come, and I think it's it's all it's just to do with infrastructure. Like, back in the medieval times when you had um, crazy, tyrannical kings running the place, there was, actu- there was also a practical side to that. Like, there was only so many books, there was only so many teachers, there was only so many people who understood or were looking into scientific mysteries. Yeah. And you really only had the infrastructure to be able to, like, raise up one or two people in order to be your leader. Right? So you had to be selective and you had to say, okay, it's going to be from this family. We're going to pick you know, this kid and he's going to get all the books and he's going to get all the opportunities to learn how to be a good leader because we really don't have that much wealth in order to educate everybody to try yeah. out for the position. And the the way I kind of like see it growing from there is like over years and years and years as the wealth increased in the world – we suddenly had the luxury of being able to say, oh, okay, now our leader can kind of come from anywhere, like, because we've got enough, like, public institutions, we've got enough access to knowledge that there's plenty of really smart people who have a background and could fill the leadership void so we can spread out and have um, elections from the populace. Um, I think that's an interesting way to look at the Internet, is that... um, the means of production are now so cheap and so plentiful that you can start to democratize even jobs that used to only be... We only see, we, it used to be really expensive. You had to have like a very high plateau of wealth in the rest of your economy to be able to afford to have an art class, a, a class of people that just do artwork all day.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and now the tools of production are so cheap and so plentiful that that art class can explode more and more of us uh, than ever before are able to to express ourselves and and uh and post things online um just because like the tools have become cheap you know like i think that it's only a matter of time before that trend extends to even the highest offices of power right like where we literally just have a, a draw every morning and you know your name might come up where you got to be prime minister for the day <laughs> <laughs> and well, i don't know about that you get to make basic cabinet level decisions the day to day work in the office is kind of boring and you're basically just working on there's keeping a science fiction story There's that on.
0: science fiction story about that about uh, um the machine it's actually an asimov story i believe asimov uh, one, one thing since we're talking about the internet and this will lead into it asimov always wrote about this uh, machine called multivac which was basically the computer that humanity would build that would design better versions of itself and kind of solve all of the big lofty problems for humanity that we haven't been able to solve like on our own and uh when he bu- when the computer is built it's a it kind of solves everything it connects everyone together it becomes the summation of human knowledge it's easily uh accessible it designs better versions of itself so that like people have it in their pocket and that they can like talk to it all the time and like get their information He was basically just describing the internet uh... more or less you know it it, it isn't this massive mile-long machine as he envisioned it obviously but it sort of facilitating uh, better versions of itself uh... like as a platform to design And then also us finding it so important that we need to design ways to put it directly in our pocket. Like, once we had the Internet, we needed a way to carry it around with us. And it's that, like, summation of human knowledge. It's the answer to every question. It's the, like, opinion of every person. It's really just this ultimate tool that we have really only started to scratch the surface of. And Asimov wrote about it in the, like, you know, early
1: 1900s. Isn't it funny that it turned out that way? Like, everybody had grim versions of the future where people were just locked to their computer screen and were in a a cubicle for the rest of time, Yeah. you know, and slaves, 1984 slaves in front of their computers, and then it's like, in reality, we get close to that, and then we go, that ain't no fun, let's invent a better way to do it, and now everybody is still just as connected, but they're wandering around the city and probably more active than they would have been um, at our age. Yeah, it's like
0: that. Just shows how important the internet actually is, because it's not just this like soul sucking hole. It's something that we are using as a really vital tool. It would be impossible for anyone to go back now. Anyone who has integrated themselves into the internet and who uses it for like constant communication and to answer questions and to settle bets and to listen to their favorite songs, like if that just disappeared tomorrow, there'd be a generation of people who basically just ripped from the teat and they'd be in, inst- I don't know how it, I would react if I, if the notion of like never being able to access the internet came up again. It's just something that like once you have it, once it's there, now that it's been invented, it can't go away. It can only grow. Yeah. It can only become more important. And the people who are trying to reject it and who are trying to say, no, the internet's a waste of time and blah, blah, blah. You are in the crazy vast minority. And like, it's it's gonna be pretty much the only thing that's left in the future. I mean, all of these other forms of media, radio and television, they're all going to be turned into just. It's all internet. just content. It's, it's all just. It content. already is all just content. Yeah, the the internet is all that and more in your pocket and on your TV and like you know it's just everywhere. It's gonna be built into our entire lives, and you have to start questioning. You know, they blur the lines of. Um, who you are on the internet and who you are in real life, and whether or not it's any different. the the interactions. I was ha- I was thinking just the interactions you have with someone on the internet and the ability to like maintain a friendship with more vigor and with more regularity than you might be able to in your like working life. Um, it's a crazy tool. Y- like the people who have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of friends on Facebook. before when it was like myspace you'd just be like oh you never meet all those people and you there's no possible way you could have any meaningful interaction with them but facebook has kind of changed the game where like you know you meet these people in real life maybe one time they go on your facebook and you might end up having like a ton of interaction with them without ever seeing them ever again yeah and you get to know about them in the same way that uh you would if you were just being straight up friends if you're just like hey let's hang out (laughs)
1: I don't expect this to happen because Facebook doesn't do anything interesting with with their privilege, but it'd be really cool to have um, a setting in Facebook where you can basically set your profile to on-air, like public, and at random, it'll fix you up with friends that through algorithms, it's decided that you have a lot in common and that you would be interested in hearing from that person even though you haven't met them. You're basically talking about internet dating at this point. But, no that I'm, but I'm talking about for culture. I'm talking about yeah. you happen to be fans of all the same bands, so you might enjoy Brennan Black's like, Facebook feed more than, you, than these people you went to high school with, so it yeah. starts hooking people up you know, the to be friends.
0: Those algorithms basically already exist in online dating. You just have to repurpose them for everybody. Because that's, yeah, all, sure. that's what all it does, right? It just tries to make these matches based on, like, you know, it gives you a couple of surveys or something like that, and then just, like, oh, you guys like the same bands. You guys answered, like, these questions the same. You're probably going to get along with one And like I that. think
1: it might be necessary because um, me and Todd Julie did a Nuit Blanche exhibit. I think it was the second year of Nuit Blanche, so maybe 2009 or something, um, called the Secular Confession Booth. Right. And uh, basically the concept... Behind it was we had an all white booth that basically showed the silhouette of the person you were going to be confessing to. Mm -hmm. And we had random strangers come in off the street and get two minutes in the booth where they could basically um, talk about anything they wanted completely anonymously to a flesh and blood person. Right. And it was a fascinating thing. It was a big hit, blah, blah, blah. But um, what was crazy was talking to the people who had heard the confessions afterwards. You would never uh, guess like what the number one confession was. What was that? Well, most people say like it's probably oh I cheated on my girlfriend or boyfriend. That was common, but the number one confession was I hate all of my friends, but I don't know what to do about it. Huh. So I feel like uh, there might be a need for Facebook to help get friend groups together, right? Because I think that there's a lot of closet people out there that have interests that are very different than the friends that they grew up with, and they're feeling, like, totally isolated. They can't find other people in their tribe.
0: Yeah, I mean, the Internet really helps to facilitate getting out of those uh, hometown friend groups. Because it's just so easy, if you think about it, when you grow up with someone for so long. uh, You just... it just... They're always around, and it just feels so natural to be their friend, even if you start really not liking them anymore. i
1: hey, Yeah, it was it was a very sad story. Like I said in one of the the confessions, and the person was just like, you know, you know what? I don't like them, but they're all I got, you know. And I don't know what to do about it because Meet new friends, people. <laughs> if I could tell,
0: like. I mean, it's, I know it's not easy for anyone to
1: do. It's 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 not a um, it's not an incess or what would be the opposite. It's not a um, a faux pas to have lots of friends. You can still keep the what the lame ones that you don't like. Yeah. You could just also start hanging out with people that have similar interests to you. But anyways, like some people who are feeling trapped, maybe they don't have the the skills or they don't know the strategy for finding people to connect with. I think that Facebook would that would be an interesting service on Facebook to be able to. But, I mean, th-
0: that in a way a already happens without them without them actually facilitating it. And, I mean, they they sort of do. In a way, they have, like, suggested friends on Facebook, right? But based on how many mutual friends you have. But it's and only
1: mutual friends, yeah. That, I don't know if that works. But, th- I
0: mean, that's a Because that's there's six degrees of separation between you and everybody. Yeah, for sure. But, I mean, I think that's a good place to start is mutual friends. And I I think Facebook also gives people a platform to uh to learn about someone without actually having to put any effort into it which i'm not sure is a good thing like if you can just uh determine what someone is like and what they like and enjoy in the span of two minutes without ever having to talk to them well i mean we're going
1: on how many years has facebook been live they have quite a bit of data built up about your your personality and stuff
0: yeah i always wonder about that and about they're just the sheer amount of data they have to offer like behavioral studies mm-hmm. and like psychiatric research they like and just appear into the minds of the masses and some people, I'm pretty like I don't post a lot of super personal shit on Facebook, I just post a lot of jokes and videos it's really just a uh, it's, uh, it's the exact same as Tumblr for me where I just repost stuff from another fantastic funny, yeah.
1: sci-fi service for Facebook would be to introduce you to yourself via digital avatar. That would be full of, like, catchphrases and things that it took from your, your posts. It'd be really fun to have that kind of black mirror effect where you re- you realize how other people see you and you wonder if you'd be your own friend <laughs> granted to yourself. Yeah. Would you think you'd be your own friend? Uh, yeah. I, I think, um, fuck. I think that I have enough personality mirroring that I probably would be pretty cool with myself. I wouldn't... If I sensed I was being obnoxious to myself, I'd kind of back off. You know? You know some people that rub you the wrong way, it's its they don't know what buttons they can push and what ones they can't. Their empathy's not at a level where they go, oh, Brendan's not... is bored or Brendan doesn't like what I'm saying. So I should... Yeah.
0: Well, that's... I mean... Body language is pretty telling. I feel like people just need to pay more attention to body language in general. Mm-hmm. It's always easy to tell whether or not someone is fucking bored by one Yeah, what they're,
1: they're staring you <laughs> the opposite direction. <laughs> uh huh. Uh huh. What? Yeah. yeah as yeah soon yeah as, yeah as, yeah. as, sure as it sure gets sure. to that point of conversation,
0: pal. you need to Place fucking pal. just stop whatever you're talking about. If someone is is like constantly checking their phone or like looking off. Or they haven't inputted anything into the conversation in a while. Like they've just been saying yes. They've just been affirming.
1: But have you it's ever over? But have you ever <laughs> played a show where they're the ones that instigated the conversation, and you're trying to, to be um, friendly to them because they're a fan of yours or something. But they seem to be the ones that are bored, even though they instigated the conversation. Yeah. Have you ever had that I effect? Don't, I don't yeah, think so. I can't recall
0: that. that. I've had a lot of people come up to me and just like talk at me not to me right and they just talk at you and you're just like yep yep and it doesn't even matter like you could just be doing something else and they're just fucking at you right I don't like to be talked at
1: yeah 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 I, d- I guess that's that's what I'm describing um, there'll be people like that, that are coming up to you to either network or probably probably mainly to network or I see they thing. just they just kind of want to introduce themselves and give you their business card or something but you try to be more friendly than that and make like a, a real connection yeah. and they're kind of like, okay, okay, yeah, 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 all right, okay, okay. And they're looking; they're already looking for the next person they're going to talk to. Yeah,
0: about. yeah, okay. I sort of encountered something like that. Or just someone who, who when you're talking, they turn off mm. and then they'll respond. And their response is usually to something that you said. I've had this so many times where I'm talking to someone and I realize that they're not listening, and then they just start talking again. And it's really what they've been doing <laughs> for the past few minutes. they've been in their own head, constructing this next cool thing they're gonna tell me. This like ne- next awesome thing about themselves. And they'll
1: start off the the sentence by going, "Oh, but what about this?" And it's or completely like non- that, yeah. seg- Some some, some
0: kind of really awkward segue of like, and like another thing is that. And what's the deal with Windows, right? <laughs> huh? Yeah, it's like an awkward comedian kind of trying to deliver these jokes to me.
1: Awkward comedian. And
0: I respond to them when I'm just like, Oh yeah, blah, blah, blah. And they're not listening. They're just like, Oh, okay. So now I have a few seconds to like get my next bit in order.
1: <gasps> <laughs> yeah, I w- he w- I was I was hanging out with my friend Sean in Hamilton and he has a lot of personal trainer dudes that he hangs out with. Yeah. Some are really cool and others are just kind of toadies because sean's like a powerful alpha male yeah and um the one dude was uh sitting on the couch and we're all eating pizza and smoking weed and we, we started to to focus in on what this one dude was saying because right. he was he kept on jumping in on the jokes and things and they'd be completely random suggestions like, it wasn't adding anything to the topic, you know? Right. He, would just like, he would just, like, shout out, Oh, yeah, yeah, but it would be a joke that didn't make any sense. It would be like, yeah, uh, But you can't get your toes in a, in a line if you don't have the mustard. <laughs> you know? And <laughs> in, with everybody talking all at once and going back and forth, you almost couldn't catch that he had said something, like, completely nonsensical. But for some reason, my friend Sean was kind of in a dickish mood. Right. And he honed right in on him. He's like, What did you say? Sorry, what? Can you repeat that? He's like, What are you talking about? He's like, That's not even a sentence, right? And, and it, oh, I don't know, it was very, very surreal. It was very surreal that he could be so off in his own little world where the only thing he understood about the conversation was the rhythm and that it was jovial. Like it didn't seem he was following the topic at all. He was just Throwing out random words. Maybe that he was crazy. I, I think he was. He was probably just re- too high or too drunk or something. But I don't know. It was. It was very strange.
0: Yeah, I've I've definitely met people like that too. Where uh, you talk to you talk to them for a few minutes, and then you suddenly realize that every answer to every question is not just like a a rushed response. They really are just not making sense. <laughs> they they just haven't been making any sense for a few minutes. And it's always really awkward to get yourself out of that conversation when you've, when you've locked in yourself into a conversation with someone who's maybe like a little bit crazy or just like doesn't understand what's going on anymore.
1: I get that feeling. I get that. Uh, I get into that mode when I'm on magic mushrooms. Like, do you ever lose your ability to make uh, coherent sentences when you've had mushrooms?
0: Often. I mean, mushrooms probably affect me worse than any other drug. Yeah.
1: It's weird. I always found that strange. Like because you have in your in your your brain, you you think you're having like the most profound idea, and you want to share it with a person that's also on mushrooms. Oh yeah. And you're trying to describe it, and it's just coming out like gobbledygook. It's just.
0: Oh, when me, <laughs> when me and my friends, I we had a period where just we did a shitload of acid. It came around, and we were like, "Whoa, this is pretty fun," and just sitting sitting around. Endless circular conversations, <laughs> just like s- <laughs> three people sitting on three different couches talking, making the same points over and over and over and over and over, and thinking it was yeah, but the yeah, this conversation ever. And just it going in this crazy, like, uh, just o- off on all these tangents, but always arriving back at just saying this exact mm-hmm. same shit. And we wouldn't realize it until days later, where we're like, "Wait, remember when we were just t- we said the exact same thing for about
1: six yeah. hours the other night?" And it makes me. It'd be interesting to see how chants, all of the um, mystical kinds of things like chanting and and mantras and stuff fit in to a situation like that. Maybe the mushrooms are trying to get you in tune with the people around you, and it would be kind of a trippy thing to have a wavelength that everybody could automatically default to when they're having confusion like that. Just like, just say...
0: I mean, I I think I I think I know what you're getting at in that, just comfortable, uh, conversation that people can kind of backfire, or not even conversation, just like rhythmical
1: noises that yeah that uh, everybody people. can join into. Because it seems like when you guys are having a conversation that's going around in circles, it it almost I can imagine it being like a tuning radio, like everybody's kind of tr- trying to tune in on the same frequency, but they're not quite getting there. And that's what's obnoxious about I it. I think
0: uh, almost, especially in moments like that, it was more <laughs> that. Uh, we are too in tune with what the other was thinking. Like just me and like Andrew sitting in a room, we pretty much know what the other person is about to say in general without being yeah, on each other. Yeah, we know drug. each other really well. And so, uh, us sitting around on psychedelics basically just means like a six-hour joke. We're telling to ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> that's just going back and forth around the room. Right, yeah. Um. And it it has it. It's under the guise of a real conversation about something, but it never actually is, and we never actually say anything that's e- important at all.
1: Yeah. I liked I liked when you guys were fucking around those voice recorder apps on the on the iPhone. Yeah. And uh, recording little samples and stuff. That that was funny. That was a big thing y- even for us. It was repetitive. That's that's how
0: you know when you have a friend just like that real connection with a friend when conversation becomes completely abstract and, uh, abstract and everything is inside jokes you yeah everything is inside jokes or you don't even need to really talk to one another and i, I don't anyone who out there who remembers MSN messenger there was a period at some point they they introduced uh, like fu- 15 second voice
1: clips <laughs> that <laughs> you
0: could just send through it and that's another thing
1: Facebook should have
0: and they they could record right from uh, right from your output of your computer so you could just record whatever is on YouTube or on what you what you're doing and you could overlay them you could just like uh, keep recording over them and over and over over them over them and we stopped typing things to each other for months we just
1: sent the voice clips. and
0: we have folders full of them of (laughs) just (laughs) (laughs) fifteen second sound bites of like songs and just, like, clips from different YouTube videos, it all just became nothing but one long-running <laughs> joke that never, ever ended. And, n- like, now when I see no, it... That's n-
1: brilliant. They should totally do that on Tumblr. That's, somebody's got to rip that off.
0: Yeah. I, and I, yeah, it, and then when we had the just the voice clips, even now, like Facebook has them. So every once in a while, I'll just send, like, 30 in a row... Andrew, I won't even bother typing, and they'll they'll just be of nothing, nothing <laughs> important.
1: Fresh prints, fresh prints, outtakes, out-takes. <laughs> yeah, outtakes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I uh, I had Yeah, I think every friend group has the uh, similar things where you've heard you've told a story so many times. All you need to do is look at the person and go like, bananas. And then they smile. <laughs> and they know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, that's a banana story. Oh, I can't get into it. It is funny. You had to be there. <laughs>
0: you had to be there. We go
1: way back. What's what's one of your anecdotes? <laughs> uh, the one, uh, the thing with the panties and the the semen and the panties oh. or whatever. Oh, that yeah. What's what's a way to a word to sum that up? Oh, uh, tough <laughs> tokes, tough tokes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> He's a <tuck> toke <laughs> tough tokes, tough tokes, bro. Now I feel almost like I have to tell the story to make it make sense.
1: As long as it as as doesn't have any information that will incriminate anybody. I'll use
0: I'll use letters. So, um uh, on one of my first visits to Toronto, I didn't know the city very well. Um, I'm from Brantford, pretty small town. Um and I was thinking about moving here and I would f- coming here to visit my friends. A lot of my friends visit here. Uh, so one one night I get Really fucked up on some chemicals, and end up at this house, where it was actually the uh, the first time I'd ever seen meth smoked really really close to me. I d- it was a kind of an eye opening situation that someone was smoking meth about like three feet from me. Mm. Like, yeah, this is the definition of sketchiness.
1: What town was this in, Toronto? Th-
0: this was in Toronto. Yeah, oh. yeah. So I was here, and I was like, ah, yeah, this is this is an encounter with meth that I didn't need to have at this age. I was maybe about like. 16 or 17. I 17? have yet to That's see meth. That's to you're lucky. That. It is a fucking weird smelling and awful thing that like really just even just being around it makes you feel.
1: I'm pretty terrible. sure the IT uh dude at um, the office that I work, the guy who lays the cables and connects the phones and stuff, I'm pretty sure he's on meth. Oh, you shouldn't say that, but yeah.
0: <laughs> anyway, so I'm in this I'm in this strange house that I've never been to before in an area of Toronto I don't know. I've been dragged along by a friend and uh we're sitting around just smoking weed, and they're smoking meth or whatever, and we're talking. It's pretty early in the morning, and the other housemate gets home, and he's, uh, he's been on tour with his band. He gets home. He kind of gives us all a nod and says, oh, I'm uh, tired, obviously, from driving. I'm just going to go to bed. And uh, so he goes into his room, and I- in about 10 seconds, we hear just, what the fuck? Just come out of the other room. And I'll preface this by saying the other guy who lived there was kind of a known sketchbag who did a lot of drugs and sold a lot of drugs and just sort of, like, fucked around a lot. Mm. And, uh, he, yeah, just a lot of people didn't trust him. And so <laughs> from out of the other room, the guy f- coming back from tour comes in and says, hey, there's porn in my DVD player, and there's cum all over my girlfriend's panties. It's, like, crusted all over him. Porn. So yeah, basically someone's gone into my room, watched porn, <laughs> left it on on my TV <laughs> like still running and used my girlfriend's panties as a fu- as a cum rag recently. It had it had to have been right, and like you know, <laughs> the other dude was on meth, so understandably he probably did, like you you probably do crazy shit when you're on meth. You probably make really poor. Decisions. Maybe he just
1: forgot which room he was in. Uh, I
0: doubt it. I feel like once you make that first poor decision of actually smoking meth, every other decision is basically automatic. They're all poor, mm-hmm. and so he comes in and he is just a raging ball of fire, and it's just like what the fuck. He's ready to basically kill and he starts like freaking out about them smoking meth in the house here i am i'm just sitting there like one of my first visits to toronto just this like kind of half-innocent kid being like oh man <sighs> i don't know what the fuck's gonna it's like someone gonna get killed so eventually he looks at me and he's like who the fuck are you Get out!" and just tells me to leave and he pushes me and i'm like oh no 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 i gotta wait for my one friend there and he's re- like my guide to the city if you just l- throw me out right now like i don't know where the fuck to go And he pushes me to the door and he's like, he's pushing me into an alley, like backs off into just one of Toronto's many back alleys, Mm. completely faceless, no street signs, no like sense of direction. And I'm just like, what am I going to do? And all he said was tough tokes, bruh, tough Tough tokes, tokes, bruh. And just like that will always stick with me. That moment of like, tough tokes, bruh, like just fuck you. This little, basically a kid, this naive kid, just fuck you and uh, eventually i ended up meeting that guy and he uh, again and he he is actually a really really kind individual and a really that's nice guy that's why he was that's why he was
1: so angry he was
0: pretty pissed off you and i could uh, understand why because that's a pretty fucked up situation but yeah just the wrath of, an, of
1: a kind man tough tilts, bro that's something to avoid you take a kind person and you push them over the edge Go a little I crazy. mean,
0: I. How would you react if you had, if you were living with? It's someone very
1: disrespectful. You shouldn't go into p- your roommate's room and masturbate all over the place.
0: Or yeah. <laughs> if, if or any can't. of the place. Unless you're looking
1: to have a fight with them, you know. Maybe that was the reaction that he was going for. I I I wonder. There's if a t- one in one hundred chance, one in one hundred chance that he could be into this. <laughs> I have to take that chance.
0: I just wonder. Like, the, the meth frame of mind, whether or not, like, in the moment, that just seemed like the best idea he'd ever had. Like, he, he sat there, and he sort of, like, he, the idea came to his head. He said, like, yeah, I should go into that room, and I should watch porn on my roommate's TV, and I'll, maybe I'll jerk off in his girlfriend's panties. And then he just did it. Mm-hmm. And it
1: seemed like a completely logical... I mean, this is a good cautionary tale. I think I'm going to remember this if I ever talk to my future children about the dangers of meth. I'm like, it can turn you into a savage asshole. A fucking What is my explanation? What is my example of this? A guy I knew knew this other guy who he went to a stranger's house with, and then this other dude was (laughs) on meth, and he masturbated all over the other dude's room, and then Brandon got kicked out. What do you think of that? Tough tokes, bro. Tough tokes, bro. Um but yeah, I, I don't I don't know. Like I say I, I haven't encountered any um any meth in my travels yet, so I don't really know what the stereotypical like is it like every drug? Is it is the average meth user um kind of a regular person and it's only like Fuck, no. a a small segment of addicts that make it stereotypically disgusting? No, or is no. it kinda like it's, it's oh it's a dirty drug like from the beginning?
0: it's it's distinctly different from something like even crack right like cuz crack is it it's pretty fucked and it's addictive as hell um but meth is on that kind of like that next level of irrationality that next like le- when you get next like next level like drug, drug user it is it is i think really it is probably the worst the worst drug for someone's personality like it is a surefire way to turn yourself into a completely deplorable and unlikable piece of shit like if if you end up smoking like because I've actually known some people who have uh, who've managed to smoke meth like once and and never do it again they mm. had that one experience with it and they also said it was like the greatest thing ever but they somehow managed to have the resolve to not get locked into that mm. which is am- amazing because you just hear so many stories of people who, uh, m- and maybe, uh, I mean, to be in the mode to want to try meth. They were saying on Joe, they was pretty sad to begin with. Right. So it might just be just a, an easy spiral from there. Like once you try meth, you're just already sad and it makes you feel so good that it's like, that's the reason everyone gets addicted. It's just because the people, all the people who are trying it are generally sad people. Because to be fair, the, n- the person I know who tried it is a pretty happy individual uh, you know pretty comfortable with themselves, and like you know as a pretty firm grasp on reality, right, so meth didn't fuck with them that badly,
1: hmm, yeah, yeah, that sounds like a that sounds like the the type of person that can experiment with whatever drug and it doesn't do much harm,
0: yeah, I feel like there are definitely people out there, but I would never ever want to try meth for any reason.
1: They were saying on Joe Rogan's show um, he was interviewing some doctor, and he was claiming that um, methamphetamine is um, very similar to Adderall. Really, I mean, Adderall that's uh, yeah. prescribed to people. Uh, he he was saying that that's chemically the same as crystal meth.
0: Weird. Hmm. I could see that though. I mean, it do, it does give you that focus, that singular focus, and that energy, just to do one thing. I know a couple of people who really like Adderall, and I I worry about its use in universities and shit like that because people really lean on it as a study aid because it's something that you can just lock yourself into doing one thing, like writing an essay or studying for a test.
1: We're brutalizing students. It's crazy how hard people work in Yeah, that's why those
0: drugs shouldn't exist because school is a kind of like treacherous enough place already for a modern student. The last thing that they need... Is a crazy chemical dependency on a focused drug, mm. on something like th- something that is the only way that they feel like they can get work done properly up to the standards and speed of like the current education system. Mm. It's scary, yeah. and I mean, like I- it's shown that uh, the alcohol, the alcoholism rate in like high-level university students, people who are in really expensive long-term programs becoming doctors and lawyers and shit like that, the alcohol. Abuse is insane. Hmm. They all drink because it's like the only way they feel like they can unwind, the only legal way that you can just fucking get it all out when you've been so just compartmentalized and like crammed and just stressed out for four straight years.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's funny to hear uh, the politicians in Ontario. Um, They're super paranoid about the lack of high-level mathematics, science, and computer graduates that are coming out. It's mostly a province of like BAs and uh, history majors and things like that. And I think that the concern is slightly misplaced in that um, we cannot compete with like, say, China, so you really wanted a lot of, like, high-level mathematics graduates so that they c- we could do higher-level programming or something. Yeah. How much more digital stuff do you we really need, right? Like, we've got an amazing connection platform that's going to be the basis of most of the economy in the Internet, and we've got the tools almost worked out. Yeah. Like, the, to- the basic tools that we need in order for the Internet to function, we don't need, like, an army of robots to, like, uh, conquer a lot of the modern uh, problems. Yeah. Um, If anything, it almost feels like there needs to be some editing that needs to happen now. There needs to be uh, people working less. There needs to be um, a rollback of a lot of modern, I don't know, farming techniques, modern um, things that we think we associate with like a middle-class lifestyle people have got to like live simpler drive less have less junk that they're buying digitize more
0: i've read a lot about that about how the 40-hour work week, especially with like the w- the current job market doesn't make sense and that like kind of this the temporary solution for creating jobs is to just cut all work weeks down to raise wages and cut all work weeks down to 20-hour work weeks and that doubles for the sure jobs yeah for sure um which is yeah it's interesting and i mean those kind of things are definite, definitely changing now, and like the the ideas are becoming more and more acceptable as the generations. A- what really needs to change, I think, is the education. I have the the biggest problem with the education system not being um, more flexible with with the amount of technology that we have now to use as teaching aids, and how at the elementary level it's not like n- a requirement it's they have computer labs and they'll have like a computer maybe in the class but it's not a requirement that the ki- all the kids are like on a computer to do their work and stuff like that it's just or to learn with something like wikipedia a kid could learn so much more with 2 hours of like an educational wikipedia where he could do the hyperlinking and he could any term he didn't understand or any idea that he wanted to explore further like every word basically could be clickable and he could just open new articles and just he or she could just expand their mind at their own pace at whatever rate they feel is comfortable for them. Meanwhile, our current <laughs> education system still forces them to all try and learn at the exact same pace, 30 kids in one class learning at the same pace, the same things for eight years before they hit high school, before they even have like the notion of a choice in what they learn. Yeah, and every kid at that age probably has a passion that they don't know about yet, and something that they like to explore. And they all might stumble on it in this like set up curriculum that has been, but they might never get to explore it. Yeah, and they might never get to like reexamine it. And by the time they reach high school and they can <coughs> start, they might have forgotten about that. Yeah. Whereas, with a computer and with something like Wikipedia with hyperlinks, they could explore it all the way they could see they could look up like uh, videos of people doing the job or just anything you know it's just a literally anything why isn't that in the hands of kids from the very start well, so why isn't the summation of man
1: man's knowledge yeah I mean Seth Godin had some ideas for um, improving the education system that aligned right with that he said two things he said the, the primary goal of an education institution, especially at the younger grades, mm-hmm. should be to find out what unique weirdness the kid is into, Yeah, and then B, get out of the way. Figure out a way to like empower them to do the stuff that they're really interested in. Yeah. Um, and then the second idea was just that uh, we're spending way too much time trying to force kids into memorizing Wikipedia pages. Yeah. And not enough time encouraging them to write them. Yeah. So there needs to be, like, the the best way to understand a topic is to um, be forced to be the teacher of that topic. So it, it Being forced to, like, put something in your own words and make an argument and make a description of a new thing, it forces you to think critically about that thing and to seek out um, hidden knowledge about that thing in a way... That memorizing facts does not. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it's more stimulating. You feel like you're contributing something to the, the larger culture, and you end up learning that topic much more intimately than you would if you were just memorizing facts on a Wikipedia pages. Yeah, I, I
0: firmly believe that the, the forced memorization of facts is not learning. Like the kind of learning that we do for most of our lives, for the beginning of our lives, is not real learning and i remember like uh, like an early example of something like like wikipedia like an educational wikipedia there's a program called uh, encarta microsoft encarta back in in the 90s and it was like n- encarta 97 or 98 i had oh it was probably 98 it came, probably came with windows 98 honestly so it was this program and on the cd it had just a crazy amount of information. It had panoramic cameras. It had, like, trivia games. It was really, tr- like, had, had the idea of hyperlinks and lots of high-quality photos. It was something that you could go on and you could, like, really learn at your own pace and explore. Like, just click on something and just completely explore it and be led to a dozen other things through it, which is the way that I like to discover things and learn. Like, I get serious joy out of, um, you know, starting in one point and ending up at like twelve other points that are like just vastly different and learning about all these different like levels of a subject. Mm-hmm. And you just don't get that in current education like yeah, you don't get that thoroughness. and if the kid r- really cares like again, the teacher is teaching off of a curriculum and off of like whatever knowledge they have in front of them. So if a kid has a question that goes beyond the knowledge of the book or the teacher, they're basically just left in the fucking dust. Like, the kid doesn't get his question answered, and he'll probably forget it. Which is shitty, because school it should be like a, a place where k- a kid can learn anything. If a kid wants to know something, if a kid's gone through the process of asking a question, they should be able to get a thorough answer.
1: Mm. And one, th- one thing that's crazy, too, is that um, the internet ma- makes it so much easier for kids to find... Um, access to a voice or to a teacher that's that's speaking a language closer to theirs and what I mean by that is we're starting as we start to understand the way the brain works better we're starting to see that not everybody learns the same way some people learn by hearing things some people learn by reading things some people learn by experiencing things like they do much better with practical hands-on stuff as opposed to working with theory and other people are different. They, um, they understand something better by reading about it first before they ad- attempt to, to translate that into movement. Mm. And one thing that's, coo- that's another aspect of the Internet that's cool is that if we have um, a mainstream kind of impulse for people to share the stuff that they know, mm-hmm. you'll have the opportunity with the right type of search for these kids to learn about a topic from somebody who kind of speaks their language from their background. Yeah. You know, so, um, I don't know, like you think of flowery language, right, and how there's so many academics that completely separate themselves from regular people and from regular students just by their high-level vocabulary. Yeah, yeah. And how that's not necessarily necessary, especially if you're talking about a story that takes place 3,000 years ago when the majority of people were illiterate and stuff. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of different ways to talk about how, you know, Attila Mm -hmm. the Hun or, like, the the Khan Empire spread and killed a lot of people, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And it would be, I think, good for um, students to be able to have a lot of different people telling that story in a lot of different styles so they can narrow in on the one that best resonates with them, you know?
0: Yeah, I like that it, because again, the the traditional way of teaching b- by now they have to realize that it's not super effective. I mean, one uh, w- one or two kids out of a class, out of any given like class of 30 will go on to really reach like their potential, really go on to do something that they love doing. And, uh, I mean, a lot of the kids I went to school with, In the, like say, so you, you go to an elementary school for eight straight years, I went to the same one for, uh, like, my whole life, basically. And most of the people I know who came out of that class aren't doing anything close to what they actually want to do or what they like. And they were all really, like, kind of misguided and frustrated at a high school. Just, in general... um not getting the, uh, the, ac- the opportunity to, to really narrow in on what was their thing early on enough in life. You have to do that early on because that otherwise then you just become a 20-something who's stumbling. Just being like, well, I could do this and I could do that. I could do this. And just like having to do, do that all too late in life while you're also trying to live. Mm-hmm. Like trying to work and live and also discover what your passion is and what you're good at. Is a very very difficult task. Like it's not easy for somebody to just.
1: I mean, all I would say is that um, I think people who have crises like that, um, you really just got to take a, a deep breath and accept that it's a lifelong process. I mean, the reason that there's so many shitty adults in the world is that there's a lot of people who've decided they've cracked the code and that they're finished growing and they decide that they're just going to be uh, grumpy and cynical on every new thing that kind of comes their way and that's the way that's the best way to understand unhappy baby boomers right is that they've reached a plateau where they're like fucking Led Zeppelin that was the, the be all and end all of rock and roll you don't need anything after that why why ha- why listen to anything contemporary it's all bullshit but blah, blah, blah.
0: do you, do you not do you disagree that that has something to do with the the education process like Someone well, sure.
1: I mean, like, there's a there's a system of hoops that we're jumping through, and the idea of the game is like get to get to third base, get around home plate, and you're a doctor. Now you can relax. Yeah. You figured out doctor at s- school. Now you're a doctor. And now, now you're you a get doctor. To make some money.
0: Yeah, and it's it's all very like formulaic, where you just like you go to elementary school, you go to high school, and then you go to college or university, and then you go into your career, and then you just work till you retire. And people like all golf. yeah, you people all follow along that, um, and that's just it's just like oh, you establish it too early that that it's that important to just to get into a job and to work it and to make a lot of money and to be a homeowner and stuff like that it's it's so early, just beaten to these kids' heads mm-hmm. so early that high school is going to be this like big test like you're going through elementary school but once you get to high school it's the fucking big time and then once you leave high school it's like whole nother level you're going to university or college and like you really got to prove yourself and if you don't do good in high school you'll never get into a good college
1: yeah i remember on uh bullying for columbine the the dudes from south park were saying very similar kind of thing where it's like there was pressure on them constantly at every level it was like Oh, and if you don't get, if you don't get past Math One, you'll not, you won't get to Math Two, and if you don't get to Math Two, you won't be able to get into a good college, and then you'll be a loser, and no one will fuck you. And
0: yeah, exactly. Blank, and blank, blank, blank. People blank. believe it because it's being told to them by someone who's been designated to teach them. Sure, that's the problem. I'm is that teachers are basically passing on this completely twisted view of how the world works and I mean onto kids. The thing,
1: the thing that. Um, I always try to remind myself, too, is, like, there's no conspiracy here. Like, I completely understand why some people have that worldview because it does work for some people. There is regular average people that just say, you know what, I'm not really interested in my job. I'm just looking for something that's going to pay the bills. And they go through and they follow um, the instructions through college. They get the degree that they need to get the job that they want, to get the salary that they need it works work for, for a certain level of time, and then they cash out, and they're like, I did my duty. That completely and works for people. Like I understand, like, people. why they would give advice for others and their children to do the same thing, but the uh, the reason why I think, like, we all s- got to start ringing the alarm bells is that, like, suddenly we've reached an impasse where the Internet is eroding the the benefits – of all of those systems, like, degrees from universities. China is churning out one million um, master's students, like, a year or something now. Yeah. Um, you've got...
0: Nobody uh, cares about your fucking, your Bachelor of Arts or anything anymore. It's you still know? cool, like,
1: but it's worth less than it used to be. Yeah. It doesn't mean, like, you're automatically going to parachute into the middle class anymore. It's not a guaranteed um, get-rich card. Um, and then, in uh, tandem with that change... There's also a precariousness going on in the stock market. Like it's not it's no longer guaranteed that you can just keep on putting money into your retirement plan or investing in companies and you'll get a return on that. Yeah, no. We've got too much volatility where no one knows who the winners and losers in the um, the stock market are going to be. So that's like yet another level of uncertainty. And then the third thing you got is this crazy turnaround with um online companies like Amazon and Facebook and Google rising out of nothing and becoming, like, bigger than governments in terms of wealth and in terms of influence. Yeah. And in a world like that where there's so much fluidity and so much speed, I don't know if um, training your kids to be obedient, um, by-the-book rule followers is the safest Solution. No. You need like to we need to be training entrepreneurs.
0: We need to train entrepreneurs and people who are problem solvers and people who are like who don't follow the rules and who think outside of the the practical uh, status quo mm-hmm. way of doing things, you know, like just going out and getting a job doesn't fucking work anymore. So many of my friends have spent a lot of money and will spend a long time paying it off for a career that they Probably believed at one point or another would actually pay it back to them, but it's not going to happen. So many people were just kind of like useless degrees at this point.
1: Yeah, I saw a really cool blog post. I I wish I could attribute it because, um, uh, but I just, the name escapes me. But this fellow was advocating, um, it was like a free master's course. Yeah. And it was basically, um, you know, 25 steps that you had to follow in order to get the equivalency of a master's so you could save yourself time. It was basically, read these five books, read these five books by these philosophers, go find um, a friend group of you know, five or s- to seven people who are also going to follow the list with you. Um, meet for coffee once a week and discuss um, the things that you read in these books. Yeah. Um, watch this lecture, this lecture, this lecture, this lecture. And um, follow this all up by writing, um, you know, Wikipedia entry where you outline um, some of the insights that you had on the topic yeah. and then it's like period. Right. And I, I think that that's such a, it's a cool thing to pass on to um, someone who was probably 18 or 19 years old, especially if they're thinking about going to art school, because really the most yeah. important yeah. thing about going to art school is um, just that you'll you'll be able to make your first round of networking. You'll end up making friends that are going to be with you along the path of like trying to, to do artwork and trying to contribute something. Ideally, yeah. They'll be your first core group of people in, in your support system and stuff. And that's really cool. But you can get that for free. If you uh, connect with other people who are of your age and are looking to move to the city and become artists, the... Uh, an alternative to going to art school is to get together with those people, buy a shared house, and then spend your time just apprenticing. Like, go find the other artists in your region that you like what they're doing, and hang out with them. Um, just through osmosis, absorb the 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 talent from from hanging around people who are better than you. Yeah, you don't need. That's the whole point. That's the only uh, aspect of art school that makes it valuable is that through osmosis you get to absorb um, the the talent of the other people's mojo you're basically just
0: sucking up all the mojo from you're sucking up the mojo
1: of other students around you who might be better than you you're getting your ego checked and you're getting your opportunity to um, make your first core group of friends that are going to be your support system your inspiration and your teachers who are your first mentors it, it
0: also gives you a really great excuse to create without having to worry about like being a part of the working world. I think a lot yep. of people go to art you school can give just yourself because a break it's and say yeah. and not
1: I'm not working. I'm in school. I'm yeah, a student. That I means I get to relax and just learn stuff. Just
0: create, which is a nice thing. I think like as a as an artist, that's probably the best the best thing about art school, except for the fact that you're going to end up paying uh, a lot of money. In the long run, for that time, whereas you could have just been. You could have n- invested that tuition
1: money directly into just affording your apartment and your supplies. And just going for it, yeah. And doing generous things like saying, hey, uh, mentor or person on the internet that I really like your work, can I w- come and work at your studio once a week and just like help you mix paint, stretch things? Let me get into the rhythm of like what it's like to actually be a working artist. Yeah. And um, absorb some of your mojo, like you said. Um, because you become the company you keep that 's the yeah. thing, so
0: that 's the best kind of education, and that 's c- the kind of malleable education that i 'm talking about, where you can just you know seek out what you really like doing and then seek out the people who are really good at it and who have already established themselves, and like through something like the internet, you can establish relationships with people who are much much better than you at something and who can teach you an immense amount about that subject way faster and way more concisely than you'll get out of any kind of broad college university program you know like if you want to be a certain kind of artist if you want to be a certain kind of scientist instead of going through this really rigid angular uh... curriculum that teaches you all these things and like certain things that you don't need to know for what you really want to do and things you're not interested in you could have a completely malleable system that you could learn whatever you want, and you could reach out to all sorts of mentors that made themselves available. And digitally, it's easy to make yourself available to to, to help mentor someone and to help teach someone, right? Like you, the actual commitment of being physically in a room with someone is gone. Like you can teach teach someone even just with uh having like webcam sessions, just like you know FaceTime teaching. It's completely viable now. Like it's. Good enough, good enough quality that you could, teach so you could almost teach someone how to play an instrument completely through FaceTime.
1: What's crazy, too, is um, having this um, situation would also be good for the established artists because, um, for me, I find the hardest thing sometimes being a working artist in uh, this day and age is you've got to have the support system to be able to stick with it it's it's kind of a marathon right like we think of artwork being or any kind of small business work as being um, scary at the beginning and hard at the beginning and then over time it gets easier but it becomes uh, an endurance race where there's a lot of industries that you really need to stick around for 10 years before you can get the traction that you need in order to go to the next level and some people just burn out like they they're they aren't able to keep making stuff and to keep sticking around and to keep connecting with people until they break through yeah you know
0: and i mean you just need a lot of people supporting you and one way in which to get people supporting you and and believing in you is to teach them to be more like you if they really admire you and they look up to you the way to to keep it that way is to interact with them and to teach them and to help them figure out why it is they like you so much and mm-hmm. how to bring that out in themselves. Mm-hmm. And if you can do that, then instead the person who might like you g- when they're going through a certain artistic phase and they just like you as an artist, they're going to like you as a person instead and 10 years down the road are still going to be checking in on the things you're doing and like what where you've gone from there because you're a real person to them. You've established communication and contact with them and you've created a kind of a legacy between the two of you that will... Outlast a lot of people's, you know, uh, waning interest, right? Like people like things for a little while, and then they really quickly move on to whatever they like next. Like I know a lot of people who br- who just boast about one artist and how great they are for like a year or two, and then never talk about them ever again. Mm-hmm. And it's just sort of, I feel like that to avoid being the flavor of the month or the year is to really create a real connection with the people who love you most
1: yeah and i can't think of a better way to do that than to have a situation where it became really mainstream for artists established artists to have apprentices the same way that they did back in the medieval times yeah. where it was just part of your of your business setup where you're going to have the responsibility to bring in um several 18 to 20 year olds that are just going to work in your office, and you're going to share your thoughts with them. You're going to share your approaches with them really, really generously. You're
0: going to stimulate them, challenge them. Yeah, the same way a mentor would. And
1: I think that what's crazy about that is it seems like uh, a lot of sacrifice on the the part of the mentor, but I actually think that if you think of it as a a marathon race where – you know, we've lost so many really great artists just from their own madness, right? Like yeah. they can't handle the isolation and n- the, the kind of like weird, um, the weird isolation you feel from your family and from some of your friends if they're not also artists. Right. Like it's very hard to relate to somebody who has a regular job if you're trying to Describe the kind of existential crises. You're talking about different worlds, basically, yeah, right? But, but if you have a social sy- system shit. around you, like it's very, very um, inspiring to be surrounded by young artists because you get wrapped up. You can't get help but get wrapped up in their energy, and yeah. they'll expose you to a lot of um, influences that you probably have missed uh, missed because of your age. Yeah. Right. One of the things that I think is a horrible miss conception about um, young people is you always hear old people jokes. They're like, <laughs> you wouldn't know this old show. It was called Killigan's Island and I was out of the 60s, way before your time. It's actually not, that's not the case. Like, young people know almost everything about culture before yeah. them and also what's going on today. Yeah. It's, the, it's the older people that are culturally not literate. They're not paying attention to, like, what's going on in their own time. They only know, like, the small window of when they were in college and they were paying attention to that stuff. They've long since moved on to just watching CNN and doing their job.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's funny how, like, uh, in the past you can see the kind of look of amazement on uh, an older person's face when you just drop a bit of, like, relatable knowledge on them as if like they've approached this conversation like I'm 56 and you're 20 and there's no possible way other than the fact that maybe you like to drink beer that we're gonna relate on anything and then you just tell them something that they didn't know about their favorite band and mm-hmm. the sheer look of, uh, of amazement and just like oh, like oh that's they kind of like appreciate you as a person but it's like yeah that's that's what you should expect out of someone who's got access to the summation of human knowledge like I know shit about decades and decades and decades before I was born. Because when
1: I became a fan of this thing, I had access to... I had the the privilege of being obsessive about it. Like, I have yeah. access to everything about that band. I
0: can yeah. watch every, like, live video and bootleg that's ever been shot, like, blah, blah, blah. It's just this...
1: And I can catch up. Your yeah. lifetime experience of Bruce Springsteen, I covered it all in, it, t- <laughs> in, in two in months. That, yeah,
0: a couple months of listening. <laughs> then I used it up and I put it away. <laughs> it's back in of thing. It, it's just a faster generation. Like, we're ju- just so much... Uh, fa- that's, wha- that's why uh, we, we're considered sort of the, the ADHD generation because our method of consumption, just like mass consumption, really quickly and moving on, and just needing to get like lots and lots and lots and lots of different things. And th- again, like that's why n- like nonsensical comedy and really random comedy had its boom when all of those kids came of age to like, you know, old enough to watch adults Swim. Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden, something like Tim and Eric, which to the previous generation, even to someone who would have liked Mr. Show, would have still looked at Tim and Eric and been like, "This is fucking ridiculous!" Like,
1: or just b- been completely confused and creeped out by creeped it. Creeped out by it. Like, it's it. just too much for their brain. Whereas, don't like, understand th- the this generation
0: is just like, "Yes, this is yeah. exactly w- what I want. I want craziness. Yeah. I want something I can't ex- expect and predict. And I Do want." Do you find like
1: that there's something about Wonder Shows and Tim and Eric? That makes me feel like the only people who could have conceived that are people who have edited a show before. Like, it's comedy that only comes from
0: editing, yeah. People that
1: actually are shooting and working with the footage and stuff themselves. They're not hiring somebody to do it for
0: them. Well, I mean, uh, just even watching you edit music videos before, there'll just be parts where. Like, you're not even realizing but I'm, I'm kind of sitting there and He's just doing like. doing the uh,
1: same part over, over, and over,
0: and over, and over and over and just going, meh, 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 meh. And there's just like a, a hilarious, like, kind of GIF image on the screen. It's like, yeah, that's a Tim and Eric joke right there. Mm-hmm. You have subconsciously created one of the funniest things I'd seen in months. Yeah. And it, you didn't even notice because you were just in the laborious process of trying to get something ready to play. Right put out yeah you know just trying to make a polished product and I think yeah a lot of that comedy especially for something like Tim and Erica wonder shows and definitely comes from skilled editors mm. who just it's way funnier to edit material into something that's funny than to try and write something that is legitimately funny from the start right. writing a bit that lands is tough but filming a bunch of stuff and cutting it into something that just has you a just lot of good. You just gotta kid.
1: pick the things that made you laugh. Yep, just the visual gags. It. You can use the visual
0: gags and the audio gags, and you can make pretty much anything into a good joke. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the genius of those shows, right? It's just the the kind of found footage style of uh, funny. You know, just not nothing writing, just complete chance and editing, and just like you know, working with material in a way that doesn't really make any sense.
1: I thought there was a. Uh I was having a conversation with Cameron, um, too, about literacy and um, the idea that uh, older people put forward that our culture is less literate than ones that have come before. Um, I think one, f- uh, that f- that dissident guy, I forget his name, the dude with the glasses. <laughs> <laughs> right, <laughs> he was saying that one. He was saying that our culture is no longer literate. It's all based on spectacle. Yeah and he was making a different point but anyways uh, um, one thing that I think is interesting is thinking about how our culture is a little bit more literate it's just that we express ourselves no longer in just the binary language or like the we no longer just express ourselves in um, vocal and word ideas and word Mm -hmm. form yeah Um, the average person has a literacy in visuals and illiteracy in um, vocals, and they're able to combine the two, right? Right. And there's also such a deep um, absorption of pop culture, like you were describing with the inside jokes that you have with your friends. Yeah. that, That becomes like a whole other layer of literacy where it's no longer a symbol for a certain thought. You can sum up an entire experience with, like, one word. Yeah. You know? Almost like a pictogram where it's a, it's a word or an inside joke that is associated with a story, and it opens up, like, a puzzle box if, you, if you're in on the conversation, you know the background. Yeah. That's a weird kind of surreal thing and a, a form, a level of expression that I think is different than... Um,
0: it it's the funny past. because, they like, the Orwellian idea of newspeak Is sort of the same thing but on the negative side like he was looking at it from a very um, dystopian point of view whereas the the current generation and generations to come are reinventing language and English especially and just shortening everything and abbreviating everything and making it so that you can like say really vast ideas or convey really like full thoughts and barely have to like put out any energy to do it Hmm. And, like, the, it's the same idea as Newspeak, only it empowers us rather than, like, takes away the complexity of our language. Because Orwell saw it as, like, oh, if you take words away and you abbreviate words and you make words all mean, like, the same thing and, like, condense them, it makes it so that no one can express any, like, outlandish subtlety. thought. No one can express subtlety and no one can, like, y- you always know exactly what someone's saying. Um, there's no, like, depth to the conversation. But I think it's... uh it's all it's really done is just made things more speedy like yeah i, I
1: mean it w- it's it's necessitated by the network right like what's happening is we're able to connect on mass to hundreds of people by being able to make abbreviated responses um to those people and to keep the connection alive but at the same time uh, what's also going on is people are using that abbreviated language to connect to a, a wide broadcast stream but then, on their closer friends, they're still able to communicate on that high level. We still keep alive all of the traditions from the past. We're, it's just yeah. additive; like we're just adding another layer of public broadcast onto like yeah, what we've always and done.
0: And we and we challenge ourselves in in a way like Twitter, the the invention of Twitter and people using Twitter is like a challenge of like okay, rather than being. Like verbose and saying a a ton of things. Say everything you need to say right now. Tell me everything you want to tell me in 145 letters. Figure it out. Figure out and like I, you know, you sit and you type a tweet and you're like, shit, I'm eight characters over. How can I possibly rephrase this? What word can I make shorter? What can I replace it with? How can I just make this idea more concise? Yeah,
1: and uh, it's surprising that how much things have changed, right? Because that's a scrutiny that a lot of intellectuals would have been uncomfortable with back in the past, but right. in a way, it's 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 very um, necessary to your ideas will spread more quickly into more people if you're able to master that concision. It's yeah, and it's also a respectful thing. Like there, I think that there's a reason why academia and is suffering from a kind of like. Backlash or an ignorance in the suburbs where people have just completely turned their back on academia. Yeah, it's it's almost become like the Latin priests back in the Middle Ages, right? Like they're behind this wall of elitism <laughs> where they associate their value as community members as being the guardians of a secret knowledge, a secret wisdom. Yeah, and um, they want. I had my friend um, from high school. He was going through a PhD program. Yeah. And he was studying uh, native languages, yeah. and he decided to do um, a grammar um, for Cherokee, like ancient Cherokee. He's one of like the few people that can speak like this old native language, right? And he was going to do um, a kind of really accessible, easy-to-use grammar for um, people to pick up on the internet and use as a tool. Like he wanted to do um, a pop book, basically, like a pop version of this academic stuff. Yeah. And he submitted it for his Ph.D., and the review board actually made him rewrite the whole thing at a quote-unquote like scholarly level. They wanted it to be a scholarly-level language, even though the ideas were all the same.
0: And the idea in the thesis was to make something that was accessible on the, on the layman level. Well, yeah, that's a non-starter. They
1: weren't interested in, in having that knowledge be accessible. They want to have this high-level academic um, aura around every all the material that comes around the place because that's what they associate with their power, right? And I think that having the internet come by and say, it's all well and good to study this material, but you have to be able to summarize it and allow it to spread into as many minds as possible in order for it to, to have value. Yeah. That's what the new scrutiny is. And I think that a lot of academics are you know pouting and rebelling against it but it's the new it's the new it's well, they're, the afraid, new they're
0: afraid their boys club is going to get broken up that's the only thing is that people who are who are university educated love to lord that over people who aren't even even if they don't if on like a conscious level they don't do that subconsciously people who who have gone through like the th- the pangs of university really love to for that to just be like a
1: talking well point it's, and a, it's a hard thing to do so it's I really understand hard. why they feel that way especially if you come out with student debt and you have to bust your ass to pay that off
0: and y- they want to make they want to make it seem like their ideas and like going to university and learning these things are such like crazy grand things these incredible achievements that like oh I went to school and I learned something is like this insane Achievement, when really it's like explained in layman terms, just about anyone with a a working brain could learn just about anything. Like all of, all of the things that they teach you in, like doctor's school, when you
1: when <laughs> you go the second to time we called it doctor school. Yeah,
0: when you go to doctor's school, I get a girl for doctor school. I to go to doctor school. Go school, and uh... but like all the things that they they teach you, the people who finish medical school, yeah, obviously they're they're very intelligent and they had the uh, the resolve to just dig in and stay there uh, even though it was really, really hard and they were cramming way too much information down their throat all at once. But that's not to say that th- they're the only kinds of people that can learn that information and that's the only way to teach that information. Like, th- there's could be someone who could learn to be a doctor over, like, 10 years and be just as efficient a, a doctor. It's just a matter of, like, time and patience, right? Like, it's not something to lord over someone else as if it's, like, this crazy thing that you have and they can't have. Because they could have it just as easily. You know, if you teach them, if you're willing to share the information with them, or, like, we make the information more accessible, then everybody is a scholar. Yeah,
1: I didn't want to, I don't um, want to downplay the amount of commitment or the um, intensity of going through, uh, a lot of like high-level university oh, courses. No, course it's it's very, it's very difficult. difficult, and I understand like why the attitude is there that they should feel proud that they accomplished something. the The thing that I um, am against is the idea that because someone didn't go through that rigor, th- there's. It seems to be kind of the expectation in academia that because some, so other people didn't go through the same courses that they did. There's no way that they could pick up a high level of learning by not going to that institution. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you following me? Like, I've been. uh, The idea I've been stuck on for the last, like, two years is that I don't believe in stupid people. Yeah. I think that um, in our more cynical times, every human being, regardless of whether you're hanging out with a bunch of fucking hillbillies or you're hanging out with really highly educated university people, They'll always have the same story about how they feel like the whole world is full of dummies. It's like, I'll tell you, I went down to the fucking gas station, the pump was broken, somebody had stuck a fucking sandwich in that pump, he said, the whole world's full of dummies, I don't understand. Then you hear, like, the same story from um, somebody from academia who's complaining that their PhD was, was rejected and they have to rewrite it. Everybody when they're in a cynical mood, automatically assumes that they are the only intelligent voice in the universe yeah. and that it's a constant battle against the blockheads. The, block the dummies. All the of the dummies. the dummies. But I think that my experience has been that there's a whole lot of people out there that are insecure about certain ideas. There's a whole lot of people that are insecure about telling the truth about how they feel about something. And everybody the other observation is that everybody is good at something and interesting if you can get them to to open up about the thing that they're interested in um i haven't run in uh walking around talking to people i haven't run into a whole lot of people that aren't talented and don't have any opinions on anything like we're all highly evolved monkeys well higher primates that have higher brain functions and stuff i think that the difference between people and the reason we mistake um, mistakenly accuse other people of being of lower intelligence is just that we're not on the same wavelength as those people and we're not empathetic enough to understand that somebody can be um, can have an inner life that is not expressed you know a really quiet person can be um, have a lot of insights into Sports or uh, music or whatever that they just have a hard time expressing. I don't know.
0: Yeah. I see what you're saying. Should we take our first break? Smoke weed every day. Smoke weed every day.